Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who each week delve into the depths of the famous and not so famous cases of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with Kim's favorite healthy dose of debunking, aka scullying. So yeah, that's true. That too. All of the above. <laughs> All of the above. A little bit of everything, you know, a nice little uh, buffet, if you will. <laughs> a, and a buffet of debunking, a buffet of scully. A buffet of everything. <laughs> um, but we're super excited because we have a very special episode for you guys today and a very special guest. We have on my old friend, Matt Bruce. Hello, Matt. How are you? Hello, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Matt is a magician, if you didn't know. He lives in the Los Angeles area. I have known him for many, many moons and loves all kinds of spooky stuff. And Matt actually has a Instagram currently called Spooky Tours LA that references different locations in the Los Angeles area that are haunted and takes you through a virtual tour of those areas and talks a little bit about the history sightings, what have you, of the locations. And it actually is the reason why he is on this particular episode. Mm -hmm. So So excited. I know. Matt, is there anything you'd like to tell us other than that? I think you just about covered it all. I mean, I I really love LA and all the weirdness about it, which uh, brings us to today's topic. Yes. Today's topic is the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, which is just filled with topics of spooky horror, murder, suicide, whatever you want. This has a perfect buffet. Buffet is my new favorite word for this episode. Anytime I say it. And I can't even say it normally. <laughs> I'm not even saying like buffet. It's no, buffet. I like, keep thinking about Phoebe buffet. Every time you say it, I'm like, I, I have a friend's flashback. Uh, yeah, right? And everyone else from the 90s is like having friend's flashbacks. So it's like friends, but with ghosts, you know, it works out. Ghost friends. Ghost friends. That's what we all are. Um, anywho, our topic is the Cecil. And, you know, I lived in Los Angeles for most of my life. And up until, you know, three years ago-ish, I don't even know what is time. But up until about three years ago, when I moved to Seattle, I didn't know a ton about the Cecil. Like I knew it existed. I just knew it as an old hotel. And In 2013, I remember hearing it come up in the news, which we'll talk about in just a bit. But I was really excited to go into more detail in researching this topic because I don't know if you know this, but the Cecil was actually the inspiration behind American Horror Stories hotel season. Pretty cool. And in general, hotels, as you know, Kim, are more likely to be the scenes of accidents, suicides, and murders because a lot of people go through hotels. and. Never really know what types of people are going through these hotels either. Well, and and any place you have high traffic of people are going to be more likely to have hauntings, which is why so many hotels, theaters, hospitals, prisons are haunted. Definitely. The Cecil has seen more than its fair share of death from an early association with suicide to even more recent phenomena. All right, so just to give you guys a heads up, we wanted to provide an official trigger warning for this episode because there is talk of suicide, there is talk of 
death. There's talk of bodies. And if this is something that you may have a hard time with, you may want to skip this one. But we just wanted to give you a heads up before getting into it. So let me give you a little bit of backstory and history behind the sea salt. So its construction began in 1924 during the boom of downtown LA's 1920s popularity when other high-end hotels were also popping up in the area. It's located at 640 South Main Street. And William Banks Hanner was a hotelier who built it. And Loy Lester Smith designed its opulent Art Deco architecture, which at the time was known as Beaux Arts Style. It included a marble lobby, stained glass windows, alabaster statues to appeal to businessmen and tourists alike. Guess how much it costs to make it? How much? It did cost a million dollars to make, which at the time actually was quite a bit to invest into a hotel. And in 1927, it was completed. And at the time, it was a very fancy hotel and it attracted fancy people. However, Within five years, the Great Depression hit and it started to affect the LA area and that neighborhood became super impoverished and had a super high homelessness and crime rate. So, you know, after 20 years of decline and the economic strain of the Great Depression, the respectable businessmen began seeking beds elsewhere and less respectable drifters began seeping into the sea soul. Uh I know, right? Watch out. Main Street at the time was then renamed to Skid Row in the 1950s, which... Down on Skid Row. Oh, dang. Just me. (laughs) No, from Little Shop of Horrors, Skid Row. Every time someone says Skid Row, that's what I think about, the song. (laughs) I believe is Is it really just me? Am I the only musical theater nerd? Probably. All right. In this group chat, yes. All but right, I, continue. But I do love Little Shop of Horrors. It right? is great. It is great. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> great musical, everyone. It's awesome. And now we have even more entertainment for you because Kim is going to sing for the rest of the episode. I'm just kidding. No, she's not. Um, <laughs> However, so Skid Row uh, in the 1950s, and this number, it was astounding to me when I found this out. There were 10,000 homeless people living within a four-mile radius in that area. Ooh, that's... That is a large... That's a lot. ...number. But this, well, is, I mean, this is depression. This is the Great Depression, this right? This is right after the Great Depression. All right, that, so that makes more sense. affected by that, yeah. Right. But what's kind of sad, and we spoke about this a long time ago in one of our episodes um, about Seattle... I feel like it was on a ghost stories, but it was when we were talking about Pioneer Square and how that used to be not the greatest area in Seattle and it never really shook its reputation. It still is not the greatest area and it still is pretty impoverished and there's still a lot of homelessness there. It's kind of like that, but in downtown LA. And so that area still is not the greatest area, but I'll get to that in a second. Well, and, so, and if you're comparing it to Pioneer Square too, I mean, Pioneer Square was the original Skid Row. So you also yeah. have that parallel. Look at that. Yeah. So wild. Anywho. Okay. So by the 1950s, the Cecil Hotel became a place for low budget living that soon appealed to transients. And fast forward to 2007, new owners took over and refurbished a portion of the hotel In 2011, it was rebranded as Stay on Main and transformed as part of the gentrification of downtown. 
As of 2017, it was redeveloped into a mix of hotel rooms and residential units, and its original 600 rooms were split into 299 low-budget hotel rooms and 301 small residencies. However, only 30 of the latter were occupied in 2014, and the new owner and hotelier Richard Bourne announced plans to collaborate with Simon Barron Development in crafting the Cecil into a boutique hotel with micro rental units. In the process, amenities like a rooftop pool would be made while preserving the historic features like the Grand Lobby. Supposedly, all of this was supposed to be done by 2019. In 2016, uh, it received recognition by the Cultural Heritage Commission and received historic status from the LA City Council in 2017. So that building is a historic building that cannot be knocked down. Now, I was having a hard time finding modern current information about the hotel now. It's really interesting because the website for the Cecil Hotel is still in existence, but frozen in time in 2013. So it even has like booking dates for like December 13th, 2013 to this day. Like when would you like your stay to be? But you can't click on anything else. It just shows you pictures of the hotel. So you can't actually book anything there. And the stay on main website doesn't work. So if you go to Yelp and see like, I wonder if I could like get more information. It even says on Yelp that it's currently closed, but Mm. we lucked out because Matt Bruce has actually ventured to the Cecil. So Matt, what do you know about the current state? So uh, I, I find it really funny that they're going to open a rooftop pool. It just seems so macabre and strange. (laughs) Uh, The hotel Figueroa, which isn't too far from the Cecil in downtown LA has a coffin shaped pool. So I guess we could just hope that this one's a coffin shaped pool too. More apt. More apt for sure. But can we all laugh at micro rental units? Like, what does how that mean? Big is a that closet. Exactly. Exactly. Literal closet. Like, yeah. They're already pretty I, small. I lived in New York and London. That's just living to me. Yeah. True. True. <laughs> when, I, when I moved into my one bedroom in Seattle, I was like, oh my God, there's so much space. <laughs> so much space for activities. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, the current state, I mean, the place has been closed for years, basically. Uh, it's dark inside, but you always see like one or two people milling about inside. So you mentioned about there being some families that were uh, like 30 families that were living there as like uh-huh. a residency. Uh-huh. Uh, some of these places, they might be close to the public for any future bookings, but remain a place where these people can still live. So I don't know if it's just security that's there, if there are a small number of families that, that still live in there. But you'll see people come out sometimes and they'll be taking in deliveries and they'll come out and they'll smoke. Uh, There's a little sign on the window. Um, I think they put a new one up, but the sign last time I I checked was we are closed. And then it also says deliveries go around back. So we're closed, but there's obviously some activity going on if they're accepting deliveries and stuff. So, um, So weird. Yeah. And I don't I haven't seen anything to do with like construction in the area. Like, I don't ever see, like, uh, trucks pulled into the alley or out front or anything. So it's not like they're, I I don't know, like, judging from the outside, it doesn't look like they're doing any remodeling on the inside. But something I wanted to point out, too, was, yeah, they changed their name to Stay on Main. A lot of people think that 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 change happened after uh, the situation with Elisa. Uh But um, it happened in 2011. 
Right. Uh, I think just the history of the place was enough for them to want to put distance uh, with the Cecil name. But since it is a cultural landmark, it still says Cecil Hotel on the side of the building really big. And it only says stay on main on the front of the building. So it's a cool thing to know that it will always be the Cecil, no matter what. You could try to rebrand it as much as possible, but it'll always yep. be the Cecil for it sure. It will always be the Cecil. Well, and you mentioned that it's it has a pretty dark reputation and a super dark history. And we'll talk about Elisa in a second. Mm-hmm. But because we're thorough, I like to go in order. So... What we're going to discuss first is the odd amount of suicides that have happened in this hotel. From what I could gather, there has been an estimate of about 17 suicides from 1931 until 2015, which is a lot. That's quite a bit. Yes and no. I mean, that's a span, though, of how many years? Like you said 1931. It's like 85 years. 85 years, 17 and 85 years in a hotel. That's not that much. (laughs) I guess I didn't really do my due diligence to look at the average uh, suicide rate in regular hotels or maybe that's that's, that's, that's one every X number of years, which uh, I mean, yes, it's not a a small amount, but over 85 years eh, in a hotel where you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people staying. Okay. I'm, I'm just, I mean, Scully's got a Scully. I'm, I'm this just saying, Scully. if you if you break down, like, how many rooms are in the hotel? Uh, 600. 600 rooms in the hotel. Okay, so on average, how many people a year are probably staying there? A lot. A lot. Well, so, yeah. well actually, actually, not yeah. that many because it couldn't, they couldn't keep it full for a long period of time because it had a really dark reputation, which we'll get to in a second. So let's talk the suicides. In November 1931, the first recorded case involved 46-year-old W.K. Norton of Manhattan Beach. He checked in as James Willies of Chicago, and then he took a bunch of poison pills. September 1932, Benjamin Dodich, 25, was found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. In late July 1934, former Army Medical Corps Sergeant Louis D. Borden, he was 52, he was found dead in his room at the Cecil. He had slashed his own throat with a razor. That is freaking... Ooh, that's brutal. brutal. Yes. And yeah, he actually brutal. left several suicide notes Um, One of which cited poor health as one of the reasons for his suicide. Sad. March 1937, Grace E. Magro jumped and she got tangled in the telephone wire on the way down from the ninth floor. Oh. Things you don't think about when you're jumping out of a building. That's not, that's, how? Yeah, that's, that's awful. That's like a collar pull. Right? Stupid. Okay. (laughs) In January 1938, Marine fireman Roy Thompson jumped to his death and was found on the skylight of a neighboring building. He had been staying at the Cecil for several weeks. In May 1939, a 39-year-old sailor named Erwin C. Neblett, who had worked aboard the USS Wright, took his life by ingesting poison. In January 1940, teacher Dorothy Skeeger, 45, ingested poison while staying at the Cecil and was reported by the LA Times to be quote-unquote near death, but apparently there were no further reports published about her condition, so that was like a 
TBD suicide. Not sure if she actually died or if it was just an attempt, but it was an attempt nonetheless. In September 1944, Dorothy Purcell, age 19, awoke to stomach pains, went to the bathroom, and delivered a baby that she didn't know she had. She thought the baby was dead and then tossed the child out of the window. At the trial, she was found not guilty of homicide due to insanity. That's a wild one. Not Mm -hmm. a suicide, but just a weird situation. Yeah. November 1947, Robert Smith, 35, died after jumping from one of Cecil's seventh floor windows. On October 22nd, 1954, San Francisco stationary firm employee Helen Gurney, 55, jumped from the window of her seventh floor room and landed on the top of the Cecil's marquee with like arm and leg dangling off of it. On February 11th, 1962, Julia Frances Moore, 50, jumped from the window of her eighth floor room and landed in a second story interior light well. In 1962, 27-year-old Pauline Otten jumped from her ninth floor window after an argument with her estranged husband, but she didn't look before she leapt, and she ended up landing on George Giannini, who was 65 Mm. and was instantly killed while he just was on an evening walk. Mm. Fun fact about this one, when they did an investigation on it, they had a hard time deciphering whether or not they were a couple. They initially thought it was a couple that leapt to their death together. And the reason why they knew it wasn't a couple was because her shoes were missing, but his shoes were on. And if he had jumped from the window, he would have lost his shoes. And so that's how they found, that's how they figured out that she just landed on him, which is and kind of wild. Yeah. yeah. His hands were in his pocket. Oh, yeah, his hands were in his pocket. When he jumped, his hands were in his pocket? No, he didn't jump. No, no, he, he was just he didn't jump. Oh, she landed. Okay, I guess she, she landed, landed on top him. of him. Okay. Yeah. So she jumped to her death, didn't watch where she was going, and landed on this poor old man who was just on a walk with his hands in his I pocket. I mean, to be fair, when you're... <laughs> I, I don't know how to say this, like, without sounding like a dick, but <laughs> when you're jumping, I don't know that you're checking both ways before you cross the road as it were also it was nighttime so it might have been mm, hard so to she see. yeah she probably couldn't see anyway on december 20th 1975 an unidentified woman approximately 23 years old jumped from her 12th floor window onto the cecil's second floor roof she had registered in the hotel on december 16th under the name allison lowell and was staying in room 327 but when they checked with her identity it was the wrong identity and they could not figure out to this day who she was on September 1st, 1992, a male adult was found deceased in the alley behind the Cecil. Authorities believe that the deceased either fell from, jumped from, or was pushed from the hotel's 15th floor, but it was never resolved. On June 13th, 2015, the body of a 28-year-old male was found outside the hotel. Some thought he might have committed suicide by jumping from the hotel, although a spokesperson from the county coroner informed the LA Times that the cause of death had not been determined. And there was never any other information released on that. So really like odd, ominous things going on. I think what's really interesting here is that we talked about sometimes, you know, longer period of time, certain amount of deaths, maybe that's not weird, but I feel like the context of a lot of these seems a little bit off and it seems a little bit weird. There's a lot of sadness and darkness associated with it, you know? What do you think, Matt? Yeah, going back to what we were talking about before too, we look at nine of the 17 suicides happened 
within the first 20 years that it was open. And we think about the area where it's in, about how that area, and it kind of devolved into Skid Row and still is today, Yeah. while simultaneously being marketed to people outside of LA as like a premier destination, because the lobby of the hotel is beautiful. Lots of mirrors, lots of marble, there's statues and stuff. And so it can seem like a really... Uh, downtown LA is not a place where a lot of people want to stay. Just just being frank as a, as a local here, you know, yeah. uh, Hollywood is not a place where you want to stay. You want to stay in some of the other neighborhoods. And but coming to Los Angeles from another location, you don't know that. So you find this killer deal, killer, hey. you know, and you want to stay there. And then you don't realize. So you've got this weird mix of like, like people who have money and the privilege to travel going to this hotel where it's just in this area where uh, a lot of people are desperate. And there seems to be a high level of uh, confidentiality here. It's kind of a sketchy place. I mean, I don't know how easy it was back then. I'm sure, obviously, it was, I've seen it plenty of times in movies, and we see it here. You're checking in under a false name. But, um, I mean, I'm sure that nicer hotels were doing a little bit better of a background check on people than the Cecil was. Sure. And the Cecil just seems to be plagued by, um, you know, n- not not crossing all the T's or dotting all the I's, I'll just say. Yeah. And like people could get away with doing stuff and people turned a blind eye to it. Exactly. Exactly. And so you would think that these people who are taking their own lives might have known that and thought, well, why not? Of all places, maybe this is the best place mm-hmm. to do it, you know? Um, yeah. And it's really sad. And we don't want to think anything like light of this. Uh, We want to make sure that we are acknowledging these people. So fun fact, because, you know, I have to do my tiny little side research if if my interest is piqued. And you have a really big bag of fun facts that you keep with you always. So I'm excited to hear your fun facts. I do. I pulled a fact from Kim's fun fact bag. Sure. That's 10 times fast. (laughs) No, thank (laughs) you. I've had too much scotch. Uh, (laughs) So suicide researchers actually look at hotels and motels as being uh, what is called, quote unquote, lethal locations. Mm. And according to a study that was done in King County, Washington, our county, yay, uh, people are 19 times more likely to commit suicide in a hotel or a motel. It's because they don't have to clean up the mess. It's a combination of factors, but that is actually one of them. Uh, There are people who do that because they don't want their family to find them. I could see that. And yeah. so they 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 do a, a hotel room or a motel room. In fact, I, I actually, I remember reading at one point a whole article that went into thorough detail about how to tell if someone has died in your hotel room. Oh my God, of course you did. Listen, I am who I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can't imagine why I can't find a date. <laughs> um. But no, there's there's like a whole slew of things you can do to try to ascertain whether or not someone has died in your hotel room. Good to know. Loving those fun facts. Thanks, Ken. I know. I know. I'm full of them, aren't I? I'm full of something. So right. full of fun facts. <laughs> it's just very bizarre. Um, and it gets more bizarre. So yes. on top of that, there's murders. So... Couple famous things associated with the Cecil Hotel. Now, there's this thing, allegedly, air quotes. We all know of the Black Dahlia in 1947. And there's rumor that Elizabeth Short, who was the Black Dahlia, had her final drink in the Cecil Hotel bar 
mere hours before being found dead just miles away. But I know Matt wants to scully that. So go scully. What we know about the Black Dolly is the Black Dolly like to hang out at the Biltmore Hotel. And the Biltmore Hotel is a really nice hotel in downtown LA. It is like where the Academy Awards used to be hosted when it first started. And when you think of like LA and Hollywood grandeur, you go to the Biltmore and you see it. It is very beautiful, even to this day. She was seen there. She would go to the bar there. She would get drinks there. And the number one suspect in that case, George Hodel, also frequented that place. And he held uh, a position, and I, I don't remember the exact uh, term, but he was, a, he was like a county physician for like social health or something. He was hired by the city. And so the Biltmore was a place where public figures and people who wanted to be in with the in crowd and the elite would kind of like rub elbows. The Cecil was not that place. And by this time, it had kind of devolved into a shady hotel. So placing the Black Dolly there, that is not a place where she would really go. And this is something that I knew from just doing research on these things. And I found out that it's kind of a more of a recent urban legend that her last drink was at the Cecil. And I think it's oh. just, to prom- just to promote the kind of weirdness of the Cecil even more. But to be totally clear, the Biltmore is not that far away from the Cecil. So it's maybe like a mile up the road or whatever. So, I mean, it's all basically the same area, but uh, I I don't think. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think there is anything. There there was one person who worked at a food stand near uh, the Cecil who said that he had seen Elizabeth Short. But that was never uh, like like totally verified. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't seen going in or leaving it. He just said that he had seen her. She may have been walking by or something. Who knows? But um, but still, I, I think that if you're a young woman trying to break into Hollywood and be an actress and be where the money is and meet producers and people who you can build connections, you're not spending time at the Cecil. Does that, that make makes sense? sense? Yeah, for sure. Well, good point. Thank you for scolding. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kim, you're not the only Scully anymore. I know, I'm so happy. I was like, <laughs> I'm not the only one. <laughs> it's so funny because, and I have to say this because I, I do give you a lot of crap, Kim, but it's just my job. Um, you know, as you do for me, we have each other's back in that sense. Exactly. <laughs> but when Matt and I were discussing this topic, when we first started talking about it, I was like, ooh, Kim's going to be so excited because <laughs> she has a new Scully friend. <laughs> I feel seen and I feel validated. Thank you. Well, I love you, Kim. <laughs> we all love you. Oh, <laughs> I'm getting teary-eyed now. I'm getting right. teary-eyed. All right. <laughs> all right, moving on. <laughs> well, before you get too teary-eyed, let's talk about Goldie Pigeon Woman Osgood. I'm sorry. Gesundheit. Could you repeat that? <laughs> Goldie Pigeon Woman Osgood. That's amazing. That that so, wins. That wins. It wins Pigeon everything. Woman is in air quotes, and she was called Pigeon Woman because everyone knew her as the lady that would feed the pigeons. So she was the feed the birds lady, like yeah. Mary Poppins. Exactly. That was yes. her. That's Goldie Pigeon Woman Osgood. Best so, name ever. I know. <laughs> Hashtag Kim's favorite names. Kim, Kim wants to take a shot every time she hears that name, just for funsies. Oh, no, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> All right. In 1964, retired phone operator Goldie Pigeon Woman Osgood, Kim Dickashot, was, no, I'm not going to be so funny, was sexually assaulted, stabbed, and strangled in her room at the Cecil. So, no, not so funny. Nope, nope, never mind. 
A hotel employee discovered her dead amongst her ransacked belongings. She was a longtime resident at the Cecil. Mm -hmm. And in life, as I told you, she'd enjoyed feeding and befriending the birds in Pershing Square, um, which is just next to the Cecil. It's the same place where Jacques Ellinger was spotted wearing bloodstained clothes on the night of her murder. So everyone thought he did it. And he was questioned, but released. And the crime remains unsolved to this day. So somebody didn't do their due diligence on that case. Then there's the infamous Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Oh, Richard Ramirez. And this is just going to be a brief jaunt through his story. Uh, We're not going to go super, you know, down the rabbit hole on this one. That'll be for another time, another place. However, um, if you don't know who Richard Ramirez was, he broke into homes and attacked their residents, eventually targeting straight couples in order to kill men and bind, rape, and demand valuables from women Mm. in 1984 and 1985 in the Los Angeles area. And he actually called the Cecil home for a year in 1984 during this time and lived on the top floor in a $14 a night room. And he was a self-avowed Satanist, if you didn't know. And he would regularly toss his bloody clothes into the hotel dumpster and then just go back to his room through the back entrance. Right, Matt? That's right. Yeah. There's even talk of him like climbing up the fire escape so people wouldn't see him go in and out of his room. But um, one of the weirdest things was this was the 80s in downtown LA and the Cecil, and it was just wild back then. So he would even drop his bloody clothes in the dumpster and then walk through the lobby naked and nobody batted an eye. Nobody even cared because it was so wild that that sort of thing was kind of considered normal. And that's how you know it is not normal. Yes. (laughs) The more you know. So, okay, I was really curious because... I lived in, I mean, I grew up in LA, right? And my parents lived like 15 minutes away from downtown LA when all this happened. And I was born in 1985. So that's the year that all this was going down. So I asked my mom, like, mom, what do you remember? Do you remember Richard Ramirez? Like, were you freaked out by him? Like, what was going on? I talked to her. I talked to my dad, talked to my stepdad. And literally all of them were like, eh, yeah, I mean, you know, crime happens in LA. My mom was more concerned about being a mother and didn't know anything going on around her. Uh, My dad was just like, yeah, there's crime. And my stepdad was like, yeah, there was just, you know, lots of dead bodies piling up on the news. And it was just a thing that you accepted. And then I talked to (laughs) Terrence's mom, my boyfriend's mom, and she was like, we were terrified. (laughs) I had windows on both sides of my bedroom and I made sure to keep them closed because this was summertime and it was hot. I know Matt has a story for this too, but it was summertime and everyone like who was terrified would keep their windows closed even if it was hot because of Richard Ramirez. Matt, I know your your mom had a similar experience. Or was it your mom or your yeah. brother? It, it was my sister. Your sister. Sorry. So, yeah, yeah. memory. Goldfish. So uh, when I was a child in Southern California, we were living in Garden Grove And there was a strange car parked outside that matched the description of Ramirez's car. And uh, my sister, uh, since he targeted women, my brother always slept with his window open. So my sister was like, Rhett, you need to shut your window. You need to lock your window tonight. And he refused to. Now, nothing happened, which is great. But 
I mean, like we're in Orange County. We're like, you know what, like 45 minutes south of L.A. where all this stuff is happening. And a good distance when you know the vast suburban sprawl of the L.A. and Orange County area. So but it just goes to show how far reaching that fear was. Yeah. And I mean, it, it was definitely scary at the time. So mm-hmm. can you imagine housing that guy at the, no at the Cecil, you know? So that energy is there too. So why not? But wait, there's more. Then, <laughs> Matt, I know you want to talk about this one. Our friend Johan. Unterweger. He's also uh, referred to as the Vienna Strangler because he is from Austria. Um, he had murdered, I believe it was a German woman, and then he was sent to prison for a life sentence. While Unterweger was in prison, he did a lot to advance the arts, so to speak. He was like writing children's books and he was writing uh, his autobiography and all this stuff. And it received a lot of attention from the outside world where a lot of people like a a German politician, uh, a future Nobel Prize winner and some other people of note were calling for his release early. I think they wanted him to be released in 86, but he wasn't released until 1990. By the time he was released, he was appearing on TV commercials. His uh, autobiography was being taught in schools. Uh, he was like a regular on radio shows and immediately went back to killing people. But he was so loved that a lot of people didn't. I don't know. It, it was almost like the focus had shifted. So they weren't really thinking about him anymore. And he was working as a journalist for a like a like a paper uh i i don't remember the name of the paper but it was something very european sounding uh in a different <laughs> language <laughs> but um they sent him to la to find out about crime in la and prostitution and while he's there he actually did ride-alongs with the police and he was there for i i believe it was like five weeks right is that correct yeah, he stayed in L.A. for five weeks specifically. And during that time, he stayed at the Cecil Hotel in room That's 1402. Right. And mm-hmm. he went on ride-alongs the LAPD to, quote, learn about crime and prostitution, air quotes. I'm doing lots of air quotes for this because while he was doing that, what they were basically investigating were crimes that he had committed. And no one knew that he had committed the crimes that they were investigating, which is super wild to me. So yeah, even, even, even though they fit his modus operandi for the murders he was committing in Europe. Yeah. And they were all prostitutes. So specifically, uh, he beat and sexually assaulted three women before strangling them to death with their own bras during this time. And these were the crimes that were covered while riding along with the LAPD and the signature of him tying the bras into specific knots. That's what kind of gave him away was because of the way he tied the knots and it was compared to what he did previously. And that's how they ended up catching him. He -hmm. was actually arrested in Miami in 1994. And I feel like this is like some kind of irony trickled into this, but he killed himself with a knot that was the same knot that was used on the bras after he was convicted to another life sentence once he was found guilty for the murders, because didn't he go uncaught for many years? Like he got away with it for a really long time until he left LA and then they found him. Yeah. For some reason they didn't think that he had anything to do with it, even though the evidence pointed to him. But I think, uh, you know, charm gets you a long way. And also if you're from one country and another country and the crimes kind of take place over international borders there's a lot of red tape and so this just added to confusion and you know he was in he was in LA doing these ride-alongs in 91 and he wasn't arrested until 1994 that's a long time that's a lot more victims who could have yeah yeah 
So who knows? There could be more out there. There could be more. Once upon an October day in 1980-something, a super cool grandma was helping her seven-year-old grandson make candles for a scouting project. She grabbed essential oils from the medicine cabinet, melted some wax in a double boiler, and said, Babe, we've got the good juju. These candles are going to be marvelous. Today, what started as a passion project is now Pearl Candle Company, based in Portland, Oregon, and named for that super cool grandma, Pearl. And it's still all about the good juju. Along with all the positive energy they pack into their process, Pearl Candle Company uses 100% soy wax, recycled reusable containers, and a portfolio of non-toxic scents that we just plain adore. Kim and I both just ordered candles from them, and we cannot wait to get them. Check them out on Instagram or at pearlcandlecompany.com. It's all about the good juju and then there is the mystery of elisa lamb in january of 2013 21 year old canadian college student elisa lamb traveled to the la area and checked into the cecil hotel on january 26th asterisk i saw a couple of places give different dates for this so i'm not going to corroborate anything specific i saw january 26th i also saw january 28th so let's say between january 26th and january 28th is when she checked in she was traveling alone and it was her first time ever traveling alone she didn't know much about la to matt's point she saw a deal it was centrally located and she took it, um, but didn't know context of, is this a nice hotel or is this potentially a haunted hotel with negative energy with lots of suicides? Who knew? So she checked in and a lot of people at this time, I know we mentioned this earlier when we talked about Richard Ramirez, but still to this day, it was true. A lot of people could go under the radar and not be caught if they were doing illicit things, right? So Still right next to Skid Row. Skid Row at this point is just as bad as it was in the past, if not worse. And Elisa actually had a travel blog and she would write in it every day. And she also communicated daily with her parents. She would call her parents every single day while she was on this trip. So that's how, you know, they made sure that she was okay. And four days after she checked in, her calls to her parents stopped and her parents were worried, right? So they called the hotel to look for her. And by the beginning of February, they had decided she had disappeared. No one had heard of her. And because she was visiting and didn't live in the area, she was categorized as a critical missing person, especially since she was not of the U.S. She was Canadian. And the investigation was started by the Robbery Homicide Division of the LAPD. By January 31st, no one saw her leave the hotel. So everyone knew that the last place they saw her was in the hotel. They checked her room. It still had all of her expensive belongings. Her computer was still there. There was no evidence of anything being ransacked. It looked pretty normal, like someone just left it. So the LAPD opened up a missing investigation to the media. Uh, they wanted to get, try to get more information in finding Elisa. Thought if maybe they gave the info to the public that maybe someone would come forward and give them some information. And 13 days after she was reported missing they finally discovered the surveillance video from the elevator. This video is wild. Oh, it's so, it's creepy. It's super creepy. So let me yeah. tell you, it's weird, super weird. And you can look it up online. So if you if you want to find it, I, I recommend you actually look at it because it's worth it. it. 
We will post it. Yeah, we will post it. Matt mm-hmm. also posted it on his Spooky Tours LA. That's um, right. I sure did. He sure did. Um, so let me tell you about this video. If you would like to pull it up as you're listening to this, feel free. So it shows Elisa displaying some very strange behavior in the elevator in the middle of the night. So she enters it alone. She presses a bunch of buttons and seems to be hiding in the small space in the corner as if she's trying to hide from someone or something. What I thought was super weird is that the elevator door stays open the whole time and no one is touching any buttons. And I don't know about you guys, but anytime I've been in an elevator, if you hold the door open too long, it yells at you and you have to push a button to hold the door open. So why is this door staying open this entire time if no one is touching the button? So that was a little weird to me. Um, she then exits and begins gesturing wildly to someone or something outside of the doors that is out of the vision of the camera. So you can't see who she's gesturing to. But what I thought was super strange too, is her gestures of her hands are kind of wonky. It looks a little unnatural. And so shortly after this public release of this video, it went completely viral. And that's when I first heard about this case was when this went viral in 2013. I remember seeing it all over social media and thinking it was the weirdest thing ever. And to this day, I think I thought about it. And that's why I wanted to even do this topic was because of this video of the elevator. So let's talk more about the details. So that's the elevator. We're going to talk about that in a second. Let me give you the rest of the details of the case. On February 19th, residents complained about the water. There was low water pressure, and the water apparently had an odd taste. Ew, 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 ew. Upon inspection, Lamb's bloated naked body was discovered floating in the water tank on the roof, and it had been contaminating the water supply for weeks. So basically, people had been bathing in brushing their teeth with and cooking with the same water that Elisa Lamb's body had been decomposing in. Hannibal Lecter would be so proud. (laughs) Her clothes were actually found floating in the water tank next to her and her cell phone was missing. So some weird stuff. Nobody could figure it out. What's super weird too is that the detectives suspected foul play from employees and As they were doing their investigation, they couldn't really come up with any information. And there's a few theories that people had. Some people thought that Lamb had bipolar disorder and maybe that caused her to act weirdly or maybe something was going on. She also, and we can talk about this in a bit too if you want, she had a blog that talked about like life on Tumblr and it didn't leak anything that seems suicidal. Another thing too, that people questioned was the access that she would have to the roof. So was it easy to access the roof? Was it hard to access the roof? So what everyone was told was that it would have been hard because you would need a roof key and you would need a ladder to get to the top of the water tank. The only people who had access to the roof key were employees. So if anyone tried to access any of the doors that required an access key, an alarm would go off. So the hotel is like covering their butt by saying, no, nobody could have come up here. You need a key. The alarm would have gone off. We would have known if something would have happened. And that's why they're saying there's no way that that could have happened. Matt, I have to ask you this because... Matt actually went there. And before we make any decisions about anything, 
I need you to tell me about this experience. So when you went to the hotel, what did you notice about like the roof and access to the roof? I'm going to back up just a little bit. I was out to eat with a friend and we were just bored wondering what we could do. And I was like, I saw this thing on the news that happened a couple of days ago about this girl who turned up dead in a water tower on top of a hotel. And I'm always, Gabby knows this about me, I'm always researching and visiting these like odd places and stuff. And one of the things that I really get a kick out of is by like climbing buildings downtown where you're really not supposed to be. And so this was like two things that I loved and we combined them and we like went, me and my friend Kim, we went downtown and we parked the car and we looked inside the window of the Cecil and we could see security there. And we were like, we're just going to walk in like we're a couple and we're just going to act like we know where we're going. So we just walked right into Cecil, went up the stairs and checked every window and they were all locked and not just like locked. They were like, like someone had taken a drill, like drilled a screw in. It wasn't like a high tech lock. It was just like some janky, just screw and a, and a wooden dowel blocking you from opening the window. And that was on every single window. And there were like doors that would go, I believe, like out to where the fire escapes were or whatever. And those had alarms. But it's not the situation that the hotel is trying to say where it was like totally secure. So we go to the next uh, floor. We see more just like windows drilled shut. We go to the next floor. And I think we did the first three, maybe four floors before I was like, screw this. Let's just take the elevator to the top floor. So we took the elevator to the top floor. And it was the same thing that we found in the previous floors. And I was like, look, there's one more hallway. I'm just going to go to the end. And then if there's nothing down here, then we'll just leave get to the end of the hallway there's a little offshoot corridor and in pencil on the wall in really big letters it said if you look for beauty in life you will find it dot 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 and an open window to a fire escape i was a little scared like honestly we're 15 floors up and i was like kim take my picture we posted the picture on my facebook because i was seriously like if we get murdered in this hotel i want people to know where we're at So she took a photo of me, like, climbing out the window onto the fire escape. And one of the weird things about it was when I got on the fire escape, there's a window to a room right at my ankles. And I can see far enough into the room to notice that there was, like, a bed there, like the corner of a bed. The sheets and blankets had been ruffled, but I couldn't see past that into the darkness. So I could feel the heat coming out of the room, but it was like... I could feel that there were people in there that perhaps could see me, but I could not see them. So that was kind of eerie. Climb up the fire escape. There's a molding on the top of the building and the fire escape kind of, kind of angles outwards. So you get this feeling when you're climbing up it, that if you were to fall, you would clear the fire escape landings and just like land on the ground. We get up there. Yeah. It's like so rickety. I mean, the place was built in the twenties and it's the same fire escape. So it's like wild. We get up there and we walk right to the water tank. Like I put my hand on it. This is an open investigation, still an open investigation. Her body was just found days prior and they're still trying to figure out what it was. And that's how easy it was. It literally took me and Kim maybe like five, 10 minutes and we were up on the roof right where it happened. And I went back like maybe at least a dozen more times, bringing different friends and different people just climbing to the roof and being like, check out this place. It's crazy. Um, yeah, it's wild. And it's honestly like one of the scariest places I've ever been because the building is shaped like a capital E because it was built in the 20s. There was no air conditioning for a place like this or maybe just because 
um, LA has like moderate weather, but they needed every room to have a window. So if you can think of like what a capital E looks like, that way every room had a window on the outside, but it also provided many corners and places for people to hide up on the roof. Also, when you get in the roof, it's not like there's like a railing keeping you from falling off. So if someone just happened to be there, you wouldn't necessarily know it. If someone happened to be there, you might get scared enough to fall off the roof. And uh, the first time we went up there, we saw other people trying to come up. They thankfully did not see us, and then they turned away. But uh, yeah, it, it was a wild experience. So basically what you're saying is it's actually not hard to get to the roof. Definitely not hard. And this kind of goes hand in hand with what I was saying earlier about how the Cecil did a pretty bad job of crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's. They weren't exactly the most uh, detail-oriented business. And I, I think this is what has allowed these kind of incidents to thrive through the history of the hotel. Definitely. And I agree with you 100%. And I think, too, like, it's really interesting to hear that perspective because that's definitely not said like anywhere in any research I did. And so that's why I thought it was so cool to be able to have you here to speak to that since you have physically been there. And in watching some of the footage, if we talk about the video really quickly, um, because I wanted to ask you your opinion on the video, some people thought she might have been on drugs and maybe was having like some kind of reaction to drugs. Yeah, Uh, I've seen that actually quite a bit, uh, the theory that she's on some sort of drugs. But... Uh, apparently during the autopsy, they didn't discover any type of drug. The only thing that you could argue with that is that she had been decomposing in water. And would that have gone out of her system by then if she was on drugs um, by the time they had discovered her and done the autopsy? So that's kind of like an unknown. But I know I thought the the video was super weird. And then Matt doesn't think the video is super weird. So Matt's going to scully the video. So you go scully. You <laughs> oh, I'm, scully. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Yes. Um, so I'm not a doctor. I can't say anything, obviously, but I can tell you what I know. And what I know of the Cecil is if you've ever been to a hostel, it is the Cecil is very similar to a hostel. Very small rooms with a shared bathroom in the hallway. And I know this because we used to use the bathrooms in the hallways. And the hostels that I've been to, especially like the ones in New York, you have like a common area where everybody hangs out and they interact with each other. Now, there wasn't like a, a bar there at the Cecil. Um, maybe there was at one point. This is another thing about, about uh, the Black Dahlia. But more like modern times, there wasn't a bar there. There was just like an area where people could get on their computers. They could hang out with each other. They could talk. And so there's a real social kind of vibe for like young people downstairs uh, right behind the lobby. So I've been in the elevator where that footage was taken. And to me, honestly, it just looks like she's having fun with somebody that she, you know, perhaps she was drinking, perhaps she wasn't, perhaps they were just vibing. I have no idea. But um, you look at the video and Gabby, you mentioned her hitting all the buttons and the door not closing. I mean, she hits all of the buttons and the only people like the little kids hit all of the buttons. People hit all of the buttons when they want to like have fun or they're playing a prank or whatever. It's a playful thing. And one of the buttons I'm positive she hits because you see her hit all of them is the one to keep the door open. And then she keeps on going back and forth in the like the, the, the laser that lets you know that the, you know, whether or not the doors can close. So I think that was a contributing factor in keeping that door open. Mm. I think she's talking to somebody that is just out of frame. The the um, elevators are weird there. There's one elevator that is a box, just like a normal elevator we go in. The elevator she was in, instead of having like three walls, it had like like 
where the corners are, it was flat. The two elevators aren't the same. So if you looked at footage from the ele other elevator, it would differ from what we're seeing here. And the way that she like pokes her head out and she looks from side to side, her hair is flapping. She's not really trying to stay concealed. It looks like she's just trying to have fun with somebody. And her playfulness gets dialed down towards the end where it looks like somebody is kind of like annoyed with her because you see her at first be very exuberant and like playful. And then at the end of it, she just kind of seems to be like, okay, okay, whatever. And she kind of seems like slumping over a little bit more and like kind of depressed that maybe she didn't get the reaction she wanted from that person. And so I invite you to like watch the video without the creepy factor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it that Hitchcock thing that he said, like, oh, you're all in a room and behind the door in that closet is a dead body and everybody's perception changes. And I kind of think that this might be one of those things where we know that there's a dead body in the water tank. So our perception changes when we look at this video. But we don't know who that person is. We don't know who she's speaking to. And do you know the date of that video? Because I don't know if it's, I know it's the last video, but I don't know if it's the video from the day that it's she died. It's from the date. It's from the, the night that she died, I, I believe. I don't have the exact date, but what they, the way that they depicted it was it was the last video of her the night that she died based on the autopsy. Mm. I think it's clear from the video that she's interacting with somebody. Who is that person? We do not know. Right. And, you know, somebody was with her in those last moments. And it is when you think of it in that way, it is creepy because because for me. I love ghosts and I love spooky stuff like that. But really the real threat, the real danger and the things that are really creepy are the people who we trust who are close to us posing a threat to us. Right. Yeah. And uh, we don't know who this person is. So, you know, it's very interesting. And another thing too, is there's a theory that there are like seconds or minutes missing from the video. Um, that's something yeah, I've that's seen that said. before. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I don't know how legit that is, but it's definitely out there. We don't know which video we're seeing. We could be seeing a video that was cut by a news station that let it, that put it out um, and maybe edited it to make it shorter to fit their segment. Or maybe we're seeing the original. We don't really know. And so I think it's also hard to verify which one was the original Mm -hmm. to say like which one was cut and which one was not. So I don't know how to debunk that exactly. What do you think, Kim? I think that's true. I, I would say that we would need to go back to the original source material and have it verified. I mean, if that's the hotel and be like, yay, this is the... <laughs> right, the shady hotel that doesn't really care what people do. Well, yeah, that's just that. But I mean, like in terms of if something could have been edited, Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, they definitely had control over that. They could have edited it. Like, what if it, like, hypothetically, what if it was someone who worked at the hotel that she became, like, buddy-buddy with when she checked in because she was by herself, and then maybe, like, she was, like, joking around with them, and they had the access to the roof that was easy, or they had the access to the video and to release only what they wanted to release. Like, they're... Well, except that... I mean, it depends how, like, how was the video obtained? Like, if the police were the ones that obtained it, then yeah. there wouldn't have been necessarily the option to edit it. They also, part of their investigation would have included fairly thorough background checks, I'm assuming, of all the... Of all the um, oh, for sure. And and so, I mean, like, where I, where I don't disagree, I think you have to put enough faith in the police that this is an avenue they would have explored. And there's also ways to tell if a video has been edited. 
yeah, and messed with. And so again, presumably, and, and I've not looked at the police report or police files on this. Uh, so I, I can't say this definitively, but if that was something they were genuinely nervous of, I'm sure they would have had their, uh, tech people look at it to see if there was evidence of it being tampered with because evidence. honestly evidence. evidence well but i i mean because it becomes fairly obvious if you're a professional you can spot when something's been fucked with there it is <laughs> there it is i'm just <laughs> enough scotch in that i will drop an f-bomb i love it the police are the police at least detectives are detectives for a reason right it does not mean they're infallible, but I also think there's things that they definitely would have investigated. Now, that's not to say that they would have then released all of that information. Absolutely. There is a reason that police do not release everything of an ongoing investigation. And this is an ongoing investigation in that respect. Uh, so yeah, it is very possible there are details of the case that they have not released to the public because they feel it is best not to and they technically did close the case in december of the same year okay oh so yeah that's right they closed the case in december of 2013 and they said that her cause of death was quote-unquote accidental drowning which could be true but she could have been helped sure there could have been yeah. a hand holding her down to drown her right yeah i think all of our questions would be answered if there was just footage from the hallway in front of the elevator but um, again, maybe it's not the Cecil being too too good on covering all their details, but there's a culture here in LA of partying on rooftops. Yeah. You've got the standard hotel downtown LA with their rooftop swimming pool parties. And then, um, you know, I've climbed a few of the buildings up here and then made friends with tenants in these buildings who are partying on the rooftop with those big neon signs that you see in like movies and stuff. And so I think that like, when I found that open window, it wasn't just an open window. There was no way to close it. It always remained open. Huh. So I wouldn't be surprised. This is just, you know, my own opinion. I wouldn't be surprised if, if like a lot of the residents climbed up there and mm. partied on the roof and just hung out. Or if they even just like jumped in the tank because they thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. But I had a few friends. I don't mean to get deep and sad. I had a few friends die in a caving accident in uh in provo utah back in 2005 and the way that they did it was they jumped into like a hole in the ground that was water and then they when they went down they could swim oh. through a, 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 a like little channel into this underground cave well when they came to try to find the way out they couldn't because there was no light and they swam past the entrance and they were stuck and four My of them God. died that's mm. so sad so, so that's always been in the back of my mind with this thing, because if yeah. it's dark out, you're above all of the city lights. She jumps into the tank. She swims around a little bit, and then she has trouble finding the exit. Yeah, that that could be a thing. Uh, I, but I don't know. It, it sounds like something, you know, I talk about there being a culture for people partying on rooftops in L.A. Um, it's true. But I, I but I always ran into groups of people. I never ran into like a, a one individual person. Mm -hmm. So. I would think that it would be strange for somebody to do it by themselves, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. Right. Yeah. No. That's crazy. I mean, that's so sad. I'm sorry to hear about that, Matt. That sucks. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it happens. But another strange thing that happened too, and I, you know, I scullied it before I even brought it up. So you're welcome. Hmm. Was that on February 27th, there was a posting to her Tumblr account and this is 28 days oh, yeah. after yeah. her death. And the posting was of a tarot card 
And the tarot card that was posted was the hermit. And I think this is very interesting for a couple of different reasons. A, she didn't have her phone or no one found her phone. So maybe it was posted by a person who took her phone. Maybe it was posted by a in advance posting scheduling because Tumblr can schedule postings out as far out as you want. So she could have like scheduled this posting at some point in time, but what's the significance of this date? Why 28 days later? Like it could be, you know what I mean? Like there's lots of questions there. And also um, fun fact about Matt, he does tarot card readings. So he does. He just, he gave me a reading this week. It was fantastic. (gasps) Uh, Yeah, it was was a good time. Um, Sign me up. Yeah, I mean, you (laughs) totally can. (laughs) Yeah, I will. Absolutely. Nice. What is the hermit to you, Matt? What does that mean? So the hermit is a ninth card in the tarot deck. And when we think of terms of numerology, we start with a one and we end with nine. One being the beginning of the journey, a nine being plans coming to fruition, or at least closure. I feel like everybody's familiar with this card, but in case you're not, the most identifiable version is from the Rider Waite deck. And you've got like this rope figure and he's holding a lantern with a star with like a light inside the lantern. And uh, he's robed, old with like a white beard, looking downward as he's walking down these stone steps. So we've got the previous cards of like strength and the chariot and the lovers, which are all like very, very colorful. But this hermit is in this kind of, It's like dark and dreary. And while it's not like a dreary card, it's almost like he's turning his back and he's moving into another world. Does that make sense? So we're moving, we're leaving one thing behind and we're approaching another. It's also representative of um, deep internal reflection, teaching us a lesson about solitude, Mm -hmm. which is very frightening for a lot of people because we don't like to be alone. And sometimes the fact is we are alone. And we have to be able to do things by ourselves. And once we can accept the fact that we are alone, then we come to terms with concepts like death, our own mortality. We read the tarot cards as like vehicles of symbolism, just as like anybody would look at a painting or listen to a song and how how there is a meaning behind these paintings and songs or whatever art that you're enjoying. um, But we also take our own thing from it. And so in Elisa Lamb's case, it's almost less symbolic and more literal literal yeah Yeah. talk about leaving the world or like feeling alone especially when we look at her history of like mental illness which she documented in her blog so yeah it's Hmm. interesting thanks for that matt that's that's good Mm -hmm. love it so now that we're done talking about the heavy stuff (laughs) let's talk about ghosts so Obviously, with things that are this heavy, there's lots of negativity. There's a lot of energy tied to this particular location. And, you know, we don't even know what the history of that space is before it was a hotel. But in all the research that I did, I actually had a really hard time finding details about hauntings. What I did find was that hotel guests regularly spot uh, sightings of dark figures in their rooms. And they often wake up to the tugging of their bed sheets while they're in their own beds. There was actually a photo, and I love talking photos <laughs> with Kim because we love to debunk everything. Uh, uh, that's how she really feels, guys. It better not be orbs. <laughs> I told him about the orbs. Oh, fucking orbs. <laughs> Costin Alderte 
Alderete. I can't pronounce his last name. Sure. Sure. Him. He actually took a photo um, and it went viral because it's a weird picture and it looks like a person jumping out of a window. So it's like a sheared out picture of a person and you can almost see like a shirt and like an upper torso, almost like a partial bodied apparition, not full bodied, but partial bodied. And I think with this one, it's interesting because A, it's not an orb. B, I want to know how that picture was taken with that type of lighting. And C, it could potentially be a residual haunting because of all the people that have jumped out of windows. So it didn't give enough information as to like what window was that? What room was it? I think right. this was on the outside of the building when they took this picture. And that's why you can't really like specify that. It looks like it's a close-up of another picture. Like, it looks like somebody took the picture and then zoomed in. But I want to see the unzoomed version. Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't know Um, if that's available, though. I know, but that's what I mean. Looking at this, I'm like, it's a cheat to only give us this portion of it because you don't see any other context to it, so... I mean, it's a good example, too, of like, you know, when you take a picture of a person who's actually moving and they look like a ghost. Because yeah, exactly. Well, that's I mean, honestly, that was the first thing I, I thought is it, it looks like somebody's kind of leaning out the window, honestly. Yeah. But it's hard for me to tell without seeing the full context of the picture. True. And that's the only there's one other picture that I found, but there wasn't a lot of information tied to it. So maybe we'll post these pictures for you guys and see what you guys think. But that's all I got on hauntings. I didn't get a ton of stuff on hauntings here. And I'm not sure if it's because maybe it's not so much a physical haunting that you experience in this type of location, but maybe more of an emotional haunting where it affects your inner thoughts and the way you function and your personality when you're in that space. Matt, when you were there, did you feel weird at all? Like what was the vibe? The vibe is is weird. You've got, you've got this place that is just mired in history and then you've got young people coming here with their own ideas of LA and Hollywood and stuff with no idea so it's like always in conflict if that makes sense yeah and then you've got the Cecil the management part of the Cecil the business Cecil that is just trying to somehow you know stay afloat in the middle of all of it and it's difficult for them uh something I wanted to say too earlier uh just about Cecil and the way they handle things is the last time I went there to try to go up on the roof was, I think it was like 2017. We made it in. So a previous time I had gone in, I was actually pulled out of the elevator by staff. Uh, they, they started really locking down the security there. And um, finally, <laughs> I decided, <laughs> I know, right? Finally. In 2017, I went there uh, with my girlfriend, Brittany, and a couple of our friends. We had walked over there from an art show and we just walked in. We got in the elevator. It was fine. We got up to the top floor. We went to the window. The window was still wide open, That's but they so put nuts. a can but they put a camera there. Why hmm. wouldn't they just shut the window? It's hmm. almost like an invitation. You go up there and we're gonna catch you when they could just lock the window. It seems much cheaper, much safer than just putting a camera right there. So the way that huh. they approach things is really strange and it's just not in keeping with the reality of the place, which I think hmm. adds to the spirit and the kind of vibe that you feel when you're there. And one of the times that we went there, I was telling Gabby this earlier, we found a dead body. Oh my God. Wait, what? what about that? You yeah, found yeah. a dead body? Yeah. I mean, that's not homeless... funny. I'm just like, what? No, it's wild. Like, like this should give everybody an idea of like this area. 
It was like a homeless woman. Yeah. (laughs) It was like this homeless woman that was just like laying on the sidewalk motionless and a policeman had been trying to like revive her and it wasn't working. So the cop was just kind of standing there. Couldn't do anything until she received backup and she was just keeping people away from the body. That's Mm. so nuts. One of my close friends, this girl, Katerina, her, this is in 2013, probably uh, the beginning of February. And her and her boyfriend at the time, Matt, wanted to have like a little staycation. So they got a room at the Cecil and they turned on the water, had low water pressure and it looked brownish. So Katerina was like, I'm not going to drink this water. And she had Matt go down the street and get some like jugs of like bottled water. And that's what they used to drink. But she brushed her teeth with that water. She bathed in that water and then found out that there was a body rotting in the tank upstairs. And she stayed there in that window of time when Elisa Lamb was in the water tank. Oh, I wish we could have a visual medium yeah. because unfortunately this is an audio medium and no one can see Kim's face. Kim has a great <laughs> facial expression right now. <laughs> rough. It is rough. Not your face, oh. Kim. <laughs> it has its moments. <laughs> <laughs> but yikes. Ooh. Yeah, big yikes, big yikes. Ooh, ooh. But yeah, that area is just not generally a good area. Like I remember when I lived there, my parents would freak out if I told them I was going to downtown and I have an overprotective <laughs> mother, but you know, it's rightfully. And I would not walk even with one friend by myself in certain a- areas of downtown at night. At it's all. definitely different for a woman mm. too. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It's just, it's not safe. And it's, you you don't know the, the crime rate is so high in that area on top of homelessness and transients that like, Kim, I know you know Seattle very well with transients here and like what the homelessness hmm. is like here. Times that by like a hundred, and that's what downtown is like in LA. It's nuts. So it's it's just really sad. It's really unfortunate. It's not the safest area, but like I think the Cecil's a really good example of what we would call the perfect storm. It's located in the right location at the right time, at the right place to get all of the things that have factored into it to cause it to be what it is now and what we know it to be. So that is the Cecil and she heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So that brings us to... Creepy Critics Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. Slightly, slightly lighter, creepy critics corner. <laughs> everyone, everyone, go watch Parks and Rec. You should, you yeah. should anyway. But just go do it. I'm always doing creepy, looking at creepy, and feeling creepy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been listening to a lot of like the H.P. Lovecraft stories and stuff. While I've been doing dishes lately, and a lot of them are like uh, the Nameless City and um, what was it? Trapped with the Pharaohs, where the guy, mm-hmm. the escape artist, is like stuck in the tomb. Um, you know, I'm always reading different H.P. Lovecraft stories because they're so great. But they always start off with, I'm a person with this crazy story and I'm under threat right now from these forces of darkness. And I'm going to tell you my tale before I die. They're all, they all start like that, which is fine for me. They could all, like a hundred stories to start like that. I'd read them all. You know what I mean? It's a good way but, to start um, a story. Mm-hmm. It is a good way to start a story. But we just finished uh, 1984, the uh, oh, New American the- Horror or, yeah, horror Story season and it was awesome oh Loved it. i was i was thinking you meant the novel and i was I like oh, yeah, George that's, Orwell. That's, that's a solid book yeah <laughs> but no I, you know what's funny is i actually i really enjoyed and 
1984 and it got some it got some shade thrown at it. And I have to say, it's probably the most I've enjoyed a season of American Horror Story in years. I haven't I finished it yet. I loved it. But I'm a slasher kid, though. I was raised on slashers. And mm-hmm. so I love anything that's going to be uh, referencing them or taking the piss out of them or, or any of it. Um, Billy Lord's too phrase. Great. What taking the piss? Yeah. yeah, that's your favorite favorite phrase. It is. Ken's I like favorite phrase. The taking the piss out of things. Um, I to speak to that. I actually watched rewatched all of American Horror Story Hotel in homage yeah. to Cecil, <laughs> just to see if there were any like crossover with mm-hmm. like jumping out of windows stuff like that. Um, but also, Terrence hadn't seen it yet, so he got to watch horror stuff and surprisingly didn't have any nightmares. So that's what I've been watching. Kim, what have you been watching? I started rewatching Hannibal. My God, that's a good show. Like, it, you know, it's Brian Fuller. It's, it's the, the directing is, is cinematic. It's gorgeous. The references, there's these subtle references to horror films and the acting is so good. It's just, it's like, my God, it's a good show. So I have um, to watch it still. I haven't seen it yet. No, you really do. Well, and and I'd forgotten until I think I texted you this last night because I'd completely forgotten that Julian Anderson is in it. Scully! Yeah, <laughs> she popped up and I was like, oh, holy shit. How could I have not mentioned this? Wait, hold on, Kim. Are you what? telling me that you're in Hannibal? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm in Hannibal. No, because then I'd get to make out with Mads. And, oh, it's okay. That's anyway. what you're going to dream about tonight. It is. It is. That's delicious. Well, having said that, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Matt, for being Yay. our guest. Thank Yay, you. Matt. We really hope you enjoyed. If you enjoyed this episode, please head on over to Apple Podcast and give us a five-star rating if you really enjoyed it mm-hmm. and a little review. We really appreciate those. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. So that way, when we have new episodes, you'll get to see them. And we also have an Instagram. Our Instagram mm-hmm. is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. And we go live every Sunday at 7 p.m. If you're curious to interact and have an opinion and tell us your thoughts and ask questions, we're here for you. Uh, we also have a website. It is www.ghoulishtendencies.com where you can find all of our show notes, all of our episodes, any kind of link to social media. We have a Twitter. It is Ghoulish Podcast. We have a Patreon and a new patron. Thank you so much for those of you that have uh, donated to our Patreon. It really helps us help you and provide you more with more content mm-hmm. and new episodes. So keep it up. We appreciate you. And having said that... Stay spooky. spooky. <laughs>